Hello and welcome to Startup Dads. I'm Amrit Santhirasanan, CEO of a high-grade startup, father to a young daughter. Join me as I speak to ultra-successful parent founders, venture capitalists and investors to take a look at the world through their eyes and uncover the lives, drives and strategies of parents and business. We're here to show you that you can grow a thriving business and happy family at the same time. Joining me today is Andrew Lynch, the co-founder and COO of Huckletree, a growing co-working community that aims to supercharge innovation by bringing like-minded businesses together. He's also dad to Edie and Esme. Listen in for Andrew's thoughts on developing a callous mind, the alternative show Startup Spouses, and what it was like quitting his job in private equity to set up Huckletree the same week he found out his wife was pregnant with his first child. As always, it's great to hear from you all, so do leave me a comment or send a DM on Twitter at Startup Dads Pod. Alternatively, reach me on LinkedIn at Amrit Santharasanan, and I promise to get back to you. All right, let's get into the episode. Andrew, welcome. Hey, Amrit. Good to meet you and uh, delighted to join. So can you tell us a little bit about Huckletree for our listeners who may not know about them, actually? Yeah, so I am the co-founder and COO of a co-working business called Huckletree. We started back in 2014 with 37 desks in a very small uh, building in Clerkenwell. And since then, we have expanded to seven buildings across uh, London, Manchester and Dublin. Seed stage, or very early stage startups, all the way to investors, corporate uh, venture funds, angels, agencies and, and even big corporates who are looking at getting their foot in, in the door of the innovation ecosystem. Over the next couple of years, we're really focused on thematic spaces and sector-driven spaces. Some of the spaces we've brought to the market already are focused on GovTech or MediaTech. And yeah, our big our big themes over the next year are, are really doubling down on that uh, ethos. That's really interesting. A really different perspective on the co-working world where you think about WeWork is obviously the canonical example, the highs and lows of WeWork, where you think of just bringing lots of different people together without maybe necessarily putting a, a structure or um, thesis around it. Yeah. How did that happen for you? How did it kind of evolve that that was the direction you wanted to take Huckletree? I think it kind of happened organically. I think, uh, you know, part of it was always very focused on what sort of value we can deliver to our member businesses. It's not necessarily about the success of Huckletree as a business that counts. It's, it's kind of riding on the coattails a little bit of the success stories of the businesses that come out of Huckletree and grow and scale. Mm. Um, so, you know, one of our early taglines was, you know, Huckletree, until you outgrow us. Um, because, That's really cool. Because part of it was definitely um, seeing those businesses grow and scale and, uh, and know that we paid a, sm- a small little part of it. But then, of course, it evolved into, you know, bear in mind, 2014, there was, wasn't that much competition. You know, co-working as a concept was actually quite, uh, mm-hmm. quite nascent. And uh, what we realized was that actually, you know, piling a load of, businesses and just hoping that they would just flourish just by product of being together, you know, we thought we could do better. Um, and part of doing better was actually making sure that the ecosystem in each location was was heavily curated. We often say no to people. Um, so from a, from, a, from a joining and a membership perspective, because actually we feel that either they, for whatever reason, wouldn't actually add value to the to the ecosystem that they were looking to join or the other way around is they actually wouldn't receive the value or they, they would only join us for kind of a, what we would consider a, a slightly more trivial reason. They liked our coffee or we had good broadband or the chairs were nice or, or the, the location was good. We want to make sure that the people join understand that it's a give and take membership style. So 
We want them to give back to the to the community, whether they're a late stage business and are helping out earlier stage businesses or vice versa. And and part of that, I think, is key to the ethos of how we've grown the business. That's really cool. And I, I think back to our first office, they weren't actively trying to foster it, but you do form a really strong bond with the first place you work and the way you build your business. And I think it's lots of things people don't think about that. You know, they often say, oh, onwards and upwards. And it's really nice your framing until you leave us because it's always a bittersweet moment, I think, when you leave the place that you know, I can remember. And I've got lots of photos of those early days spent building the business. And actually, I can imagine that you get a really kind of multiplicative effect of putting lots of people who've got the same kind of goals together. Absolutely. Right. Lots of startup stuff. That was a super interesting journey for me to learn a bit about Huckletree. Let's talk about you because I read about you when I was uh, looking at at the show and I found out that you're not only the co-founder of a pretty awesome startup, but you're an ultramarathoner and like a ridiculous ultramarathoner. How on earth, Andrew, do you do how? I mean, forget about the running because I can't run more than 15 meters in a go. (laughs) How do you do that? And how do you do that at the same time? What's your secret? Yeah. Uh, a, pa- a, pa- a, a patient wife, you know, I kind of fell into it. I think like most things probably in my life, there wasn't this eureka moment where I thought, actually, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to start spending huge amounts of time and energy and effort into uh, <laughs> to wearing out running shoes. But no, it, it, for me, it was um, sometimes I call it a fat person moment. <laughs> I kind of woke up one morning going, actually, I spent three or four years building Huckletree and at the time I believe yeah my my eldest was actually my my only child at the time was maybe two two and a half something like that and I went for a run with a friend of mine in London uh, along the river and it was New Year's Day or something and I, I remember getting like four or five kilometers in and I was running I you know I, I, I played rugby back back in the day and I was running with a rugby friend and he was kind of a big, burly guy. You know, I always thought that I was a bit leaner than him. In my head, I was leaner than him and fitter than him, of course, with buckets of confidence, but nothing to back it up, basically. And I said, halfway through, I told him, I said, Tony, I'm about to collapse. I'm about to die here. I, I, I was de-layering. I had three layers on because it was New Year's Day. I was stripping layers. And it was the river, too. So I, I, could, I had to go back via one of the bridges. And I, I knew there was going to be a point of no return. Where, the, where, where I would be 50% through and I would have to complete the remaining yeah. 50% in order to get home. Yeah. And I think I got to maybe 42% in and I was like, no, no, because I, I, you know, I need to do 84% of this to get. Yes. <laughs> so, so I turned around and I kind of you know, cried into my cornflakes for a couple of minutes. And that, I believe, was the day that I signed up for the Dublin Marathon. I went home and I signed up and I told my wife then after that and she said, oh, that's a good, that's a good thing to do. And, and I kind of started there. Like most people do, I targeted 5K and then targeted 10K and you know, did a few kind of gym classes and nothing overly dramatic for that first marathon. And I believe that was uh, 2017, 2018 maybe. And then kind of speed, speed, you know, that was all through the summer. Got a, got what I thought was fit, kind of did a four hour marathon. So semi-respectable, but certainly not coming home with any trophies. Uh, when I got home from that marathon, I, I re, you know, I realized the marathon's 42 kilometers. And I said, 42, it's kind of a, kind of an annoying number, <laughs> kind of an awkward, <laughs> it's kind of 40, 42. I kind of just, I was a bit pissed off, to be honest. I was like, but why isn't it 45? Why couldn't, you know, that's a little bit rounder. And then of course, if you're going to run 45 kilometers, you have to finish it and run 50. 
50, yeah. So that was in September 2000, let's say it's eight, I think it was 18, September 2018. I uh, went online, found this running, this ultra running website, which is the worst decision I've ever had <laughs> in my life. And I signed up for the, the Dorking 50 kilometer race, which was a month afterwards. So I said, look, I, this is the fittest I've ever been from a long distance perspective, at least. And I signed up for the Dorking half, you know, Dorking 50 kilometers. And then, you know, got to Dorking, <laughs> which is in, uh, in Surrey, uh, in, in London, uh, or outside London. Ran 50 kilometers, uh, got lost in the dark, because <laughs> it was October, so it was dark very early. So for, for me, it wasn't the Dorking 50, it was the Dorking 54.7. Um, <laughs> right. You know, and I, I actually crossed the finish line the other way. I came back over the finish line, which right. doesn't make any Fast. sense. I went around the town, basically. Um, and it kind of just, the itch you know, didn't really get scratched and went through Christmas. And eventually it's kind of, a, a, you know, a, a, it's, it's come to a head in that I've signed up for the Marathon de Sable, which is a 280-kilometer Sahara-based foot race <laughs> over, over six days, fully self-sufficient. I have no idea why. I'm still chasing the why. Hopefully it'll be at the end of the rainbow. I think that's uh, it's epic. I mean, there's so many things I want to pick up on, but I suppose the first one is the persistence and growth mindset, right? So clearly you're like, right, I'm going to do this and what's next and what's better. And I suppose I'm always interested in talking to founders. Is that just something that you have always had, right? So because it, clearly you're building a high growth business, right? So to some extent, high growth businesses, they have the same sort of potential trajectory. Yeah. Do you think about that actively or is that just something that is inside you? I think I, historically, it was somewhat innate that I didn't overly think about it and that it just kind of happened. I think one thing, you know, I heard a very good phrase a couple of years ago about ultra running and, and any kind of endurance or hurt locker style uh, <laughs> event of some description. And it, the phrase was, you know, these endeavors kind of callous the mind. Uh, one of the you know, people, and again, people always go, well, why? You know, why, why would you do it? What's your why? You know, I did a, a 70 kilometer training run last Monday and it was, um, which people are looking at me like I have <laughs> nine heads, you know, it's just, I, they couldn't even get themselves to that point. But what I did was I, I essentially chipped away at it. So I did that 5K along the Thames, signed up for a marathon, which was the biggest hurdle ever. You know, I couldn't believe I had just run 40, 40, 42 kilometers. Uh, mentally, I was assuming that I would be exhausted and just crippled for a week afterwards. And I was. But then you do 50 and, you know, you have to do something on the Tuesday following the Sunday and you realize, actually, I'm not that bad. And then all of a sudden you're doing 70K training runs and you're putting the kids to bed when you get home and you're getting up for work at, you know, half six the next day. And so in terms of callousing the mind, you're, you realize that you can do it. So mentally, actually, it's not necessarily about putting your body physically through it. It's just about doing something that is very, very difficult and then your body then knows that it can do it. And unless mechanically, unless you break down, you know, which is something every endurance athlete always tries to avoid, obviously. But mentally, now I know, actually, I could probably run further than most people could cycle. That's epic. I suppose my question for you is, do you see Huckletree in the same way in terms of the opportunity that sits in front of you? Yes, good question. But less of a battle against myself and more of a, a battle against all the other components. Yes. Um, I definitely thought that post-COVID that it was like a battle. And, you know, there's a lot of chat between kind of wartime founders or maintenance mm. founders, you know. Uh, you know yeah. uh, I'm probably better in the trenches. 
but equally uh, I quite enjoy it. The the kind of adversarial situations that that puts people in. I I'd like to think that I'm quite good at making hopefully good decisions in those scenarios. So so yeah, I would say that probably similar and probably it's probably like that with Huckle Tree too, but equally it's obviously very different. And I think um, people always kind of harp back to professional sports people being incredibly focused and single-minded. I think that is important, but equally you can't be too single-minded when you're running a startup. Like, Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's definitely the case. Uh, it's a really good phrase. I've not heard it before because, you know, people often say, well, how do you deal with all of this pressure? And I'm just like, well, once you've had one, just what the fuck is going on moment, you know, it's not so bad <laughs> the next time. <laughs> it's a very good analogy. My last question for you is about how you frame, because I, one thing that I've always struggled with is time management is so difficult, right? And when you do these endurance sports, a lot of it, I mean, it's not necessarily just about putting the miles in, it's about lots of things I expect. But how do you frame it to yourself so that you give yourself the space? Because I think one of the things that founders are generally bad at is kind of partitioning time to actually go out and go and do these things, right? The things that help them recuperate and give them the balance. So how have you framed that? And how do you build that into Huckletree? Yeah, that's <laughs> time management. I'm going to be honest. You might think that I'm amazing at it, but I'm terrible at it. Um, and I think I have a, a loving wife at home that will absolutely agree with me in that instance. <laughs> oh, the answer I'm going to give you, probably she is going to take issue with <laughs> because she's going to say, you're probably lying. You think that, but that's not the case. You are full of complete shit. And uh, uh, you don't succeed in managing your time and you don't work around it and you don't, you know, you are gone for half of a Sunday and we're all at home waiting for you to come home. So, so I have to caveat that. I have to, I have to tell the truth. However, I will say that the problem with the, so talking about the, the ultra marathon, for example, the very, very long one, I signed up for that two and a half years ago. COVID has thrown a total spanner in the works um, with regards to that. I've trained uh, which seems completely and utterly r ridiculous, but I've trained five times for the <laughs> oh race. Oh my God. So, oh my God. And again, just for anyone who doesn't know, you know, training for these races, you don't go up plateau and then just stay fit all the time. You, you have 12 week big training blocks and then you have kind of four weeks of maintenance, essentially. Um, so I have, you know, I have done big 12 week blocks. The race has been canceled four times. Um, and each time been cancelled maybe two or three weeks prior to the race. So each time it's been cancelled um, has been after my 12-week training block. So I've, I've, been, I've gotten to kind of peak physical fitness uh, only for it to be cancelled. <laughs> so if that's not mentally taxing, I'm not, I'm not quite sure what is. But w one point on the time management is that, you know, early on... Um, and now to an extent, I've just had to work around it. I've, you know, you, there are some fixed, there are some non-negotiables in my life and mm. the kids wake up at a certain time, they go to bed at a certain time, they eat and drink and sleep at a certain time. And I have to, you know, row in with that. During a couple of the long runs I was doing, I was getting up at kind of half three in the morning. So I'd hit the office at maybe nine and I would have done maybe 40, 45K before that. So, you know, a, mar a mar marathon before breakfast certainly, certainly wakes you up. <laughs> Um, and, and then, yeah, uh, you know, I would, I would do my best at least again, I can, I can hear my wife in my ear already, but I would do my best at least to, to give the various people in my life a bit of forward notice of, of me having to do some big block training runs or, you know, I, I thankfully Gabby and the team at Huckletree have been really supportive too. I mean, I can imagine, um, 
I joke that I have a, I have a work wife and a home wife, and I'm lucky that both wives have been, um, I'd say their patience is running out, to be honest. I'd say if it doesn't happen this October, you know, there'll be some, there'll be some sly eyes and a couple of nods and elbows wondering um, if it's worth it all. I mean, to be honest, Andrew, if you manage to prep for the sixth time, I just, <laughs> I, I'll be so impressed. I'll just run it on I mean, my own. I'll, I'll take, I'll take, the, <laughs> yeah, I'll, take the guy, I'll take the lead of, of many endurance athletes in the last two months during COVID and, and find a big enough patio to do laps of. Yeah. What you're talking to speaks to me about something that I think is something I've had to learn massively when you have particularly multiple people dependents, right? Is managing expectations. Yeah. And that's just one of the most key things because my wife always, again, for what it's worth, my wife, I think mercifully doesn't listen to this podcast otherwise I'd be in real <laughs> trouble lots of times. But she often says, is it five minutes or is it an Amrit five minutes? Because an Amrit five minutes, yeah, it could be three hours later when you tell me you're about to walk out the office. Yeah, and you come back at 11.30 or whatever it is. Like, that's not five minutes, Amrit. And I think I've had to learn to actually really be clear. So like either tell her it's not five minutes yeah. Yeah, or get out in five minutes. I have a feeling there's a tangent podcast here that we need to look into, which is Startup Spouses. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Uh, because I have a feeling that um, there'd be, you know, if you put enough of them together, there'll certainly be a few calloused minds, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and calloused, calloused everything else, I think. But I'd like to pick up on the kind of the balance, like you say, about dealing with family and startups, because clearly resilience, it, it looks to me like it comes pretty naturally to you. My question is, how have you built resilience when you have to face challenges at home and at work? Because, you know, that's one of the things that I find most difficult, right, is when shit hits the fan at home, you can make it work. Shit hits mm. the fan at work, it's fine. When I'm squeezed in both directions, that's the challenge that I found yeah. really difficult. I think, you know, you must have had to deal with lots of that. Yeah, I, I have. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that my, my kind of startup journey pretty much of the day aligns with my dad journey. Uh, my first kind of full-time day, having quit my suit and tie job in private equity, was on uh, the 15th of May 2014. And on the 16th of May, just before we viewed for the first time what turned out to be our second location in Finsbury Square in Moorgate, my wife called me with the news that she was expecting. Wow. And I mean, that was probably, I was outside, I'll never forget it, obviously. I was outside the building in Moorgate and she said, oh, I'm pregnant. And I said, okay, give me 20 minutes, I'll call you back. <laughs> <laughs> and I, to this day, I have absolutely no idea what I spoke about, what I looked at in the tour of the building. It was just a complete blur. And I got back out, obviously, and I said, Jen, did you call me 20 minutes ago? <laughs> And she's like, yeah, I did. And I've been waiting by the phone for the last 20 minutes. Did you just take a meeting after being told that you were going to be a dad for the first time? And I said, I said, no, I, I just, I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I just kind of blacked out. <laughs> and to put this into perspective, I had left a, a job with a, um, a, a private equity business called Cambridge Associates. And, uh, you know, I'd left a pension and health insurance and I was doing okay at work and I had a good trajectory and, you know, I had a good job, basically, and a good job and a secure job and all the good things that, that come with that. And maybe two days later, I was sitting in front of one of our seed investors, you know, with the cash flow and, um, and essentially I promised him that if we didn't raise money and we didn't find a new building to grow and, and justify our, you know, central cost base, etc., I would fire myself. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, going back to your initial question, you know, how, where does that resilience come, come from? It's kind of forced. It's essentially life or death. It's when you have kids, 
something kind of just switched in my head. I wasn't the greatest in school. I wasn't the most focused. You know, I think the first book I finished, you know, cover to cover, I was 18 or something. I think it was Rich Dad. I think it was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, and I, I, I read it whilst in a library trying to study for my, like, A-level equivalent. You know, I was in the library trying to do maths and I was like, oh, what's down here in the business section? So, you know, even when I was trying, I was failing. You know, that focus, I suppose, came with... Um, realizing actually that you personally are no longer the most important thing in your life, which I think hit me like a, like a pineapple to the face. But, you know, it's, it's, it's very much sink or swim then. And I think after I told that investor that I would sack myself, I dug in and we, I believe we closed around that October. I must have sweet talked him out of not uh, forgetting, uh, out, of, out of forgetting that I would sack myself in September. But we got to October and then we opened, we actually opened the shortage building in, uh, April that following year, and Edie, who's now five, was born uh, the 17th of January. So, so three months before launch, we had a, a newborn at home. It's a super cool story. And I think your point about true resilience, it's not something you can simulate. <laughs> it's only something you really find out when, yeah. like you say, you've got no choice. And yeah. I think one of the things that you do realize is it's only when actually you really have these absolutes that maybe you didn't have before, because actually you're right, you don't have a choice really, do you? No, no. And it's not, and you don't decide. That's people when they talk about experience. You, know, you can't teach, yeah. you know, you can't teach experience. Experience is something that comes with time. And the whole purpose of it is, is that actually having gone through things, you realize that there's another side. And also you realize how you dealt with it emotionally, like actually, like technically how you dealt with things. And when something else comes up, yeah, it might be hard, but you realize, God, I remember, I remember how hard I thought this was going to be and I got through it. And that's when I talk about like, you know, a calloused mind. It's a, it's a point. Um, mm. I quit a lot. It sounds ridiculous, but I quit a lot. So in the 70 kilometer training session I had two or three weeks ago, I quit maybe five times. And that sounds ridiculous. People ask like, what do you mean you quit? Like I finished it. But I looked at Uber in Richmond. I was coming back the river and I was like, how much would an Uber cost? And it was, it was too much, whatever that means in my head. I was like, no, 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 I'm not, you know, I don't want to quit that bad. <laughs> and, then, and then it started pouring rain. And, I, and it was the day that there was huge floods in London. And I was in the middle of it beside a river, <laughs> um, which was like gaining on me. So I was like, no, I, I better get home before the path disappears underneath my feet. Uh, rolled my ankle, rolled my ankle under a curb. At, at kilometer 50, so I eventually got to 50. I'm getting too detailed there, but what I mean is, is that, you know, people say, oh, you're resilient and you're not a quitter. Scratch that, I'm, I'm not resilient and I am a quitter. I just, I managed to kind of park that thought and run another 5K and then run another yeah. 5K. And then in my head, once I was at 45, I was like, well, 50 is pretty close. And then I said, okay, I'm going to put on this album, you know, whatever music in my head. I'm going to, say, I'm going to listen to the album. I'm not going to look at it. I'm going to turn my watch off. I'm going to flick it onto time instead of distance. And you use these little tricks. And I think it's those little tricks are, are you can use those tricks when, when running a business. You know, I have this big, huge goal. I have to, you know, open 10 buildings in the next two years. Oh my God, you know, there's no way I can do it. How do we do that? Blah, blah, blah. And then you realize actually, I just need to open one building now, or I need to meet 10 investors, or I need to meet 50 investors because actually I know that only two of them will listen. Or, you know, and, and you know, as my dad always says, you know, how do you, how do you eat an elephant? Um, uh, and, and I think you chip away yeah. at that and all of a sudden, 
you know, for example, in 2018, we didn't open any spaces and we were a bit worried. We said, oh God, you know, all these big, all these other competitors are scaling. And, and then we kind of bumped heads and, and, and focused a bit and really refined the product, looked at our brand, looked at how we were marketing the space, looked at our vision and how we were talking about it and who we were speaking to. And in 2019, we doubled in size. You know, you have to be careful to chip away. The big, hairy, audacious goal is important, but actually what's more important is just chipping away. Yeah, yeah I love that. It's actually really, and your, your running analogy is fantastic because you're right, resilience isn't about not feeling pain, right? It, it's actually about keeping going. So I suppose thinking about the dad side of things, effectively, you've been a startup dad for your whole startup journey. Can you reflect on how that's influenced possibly how you've built Huckletree? Yeah, well, myself and uh, Gabby, our, our CEO, Pretty much to the month, both have had two kids. You know, they're both five and a half now. And, you know, I joke sometimes that Gabby had a little bit more work to do um, in, the whole, in the whole scenario. <laughs> I hope she's not listening to this. I hope no, your they're, wife they're, and Gabby. They're, they're best friends, so it's fine. Um, and then, uh, and I, you know, I, I tell people sometimes, um, maybe a month after, you know, my first, uh, you know, that, that, that first month where I was kind of fully focused on Uncle Tree. I was really nervous. Again, it sounds ridiculous, but I was really nervous to tell Gabby that Jen, my wife, was pregnant. I don't know why. I think it was, I think I felt like I was 15 years old and I was like teen dad. I don't know why. I just, I thought that, I thought that I was so young that of course everyone's going to be like, how, how are you having a child? You know, I was 27 or something. And I, you know, in my head, I was just a baby. I still am. But, and I brought Gabby, I brought Gabby for a coffee and uh, I said, Gabby, I have some news. You know, I think she was going to tell, tell her I was dying or something. And, uh, and I said, uh, Jen's pregnant. <laughs> and Gabby, Gabby kind of just deadpan, grabbed my gels and kind of looked at me straight in the eye. And she said, me too. <laughs> <laughs> now that is a comeback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, what? You know, <laughs> gutted that my news didn't trump all other news, you know. And she said, yeah, I'm, I'm pregnant as well. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, we're so screwed. <laughs> how, how, how are we going to do this with, with both of us having you know, small kids? And again, going back to my callous mind point, you think that's the biggest thing that could ever happen. And then you just, you know, it becomes a, a small anecdote that you tell on a podcast six years later, you know? So Andrew, the question I want to ask you now, the one I ask every guest, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your journey in entrepreneurship that you want to pass on to your kids? I think there's been a, a vein of chat going through this about resilience and you know the importance of being focused, but also realizing that with all big obstacles, actually it's about how you approach and attack those obstacles. And you know, as a as a teacher of mine used to used to say, it's not about the answer; it's about how you attack the question, the way you go about trying to answer it. I think for me, what I'd love my kids to kind of grow up with is the knowledge that actually you can kind of. You are, you are the master of your own destiny. Don't let anyone tell you what you can or can't do. Um, confidence in their ability to do whatever they want to do. Confidence in their ability to say what they need to say to whoever they need to say it. Um, and just generally to have the confidence to be able to take risks. And um, hopefully to have me in the background that if they fall that I can kind of catch them. That's uh, super great. Before we wrap up, we close up the show by shining a light on some of the hardest working people we know, most inspiring people in the startup ecosystem in our segment, Startup Shoutouts. Startup Shoutouts. So Andrew, who's your startup shoutout this week? 
my uh, loving shout out is to a guy called Antoine Nussenbaum. Antoine is essentially the reason that I got introduced to Gabby, our CEO, and essentially the genesis of where I am uh, from a Huckleberry perspective today. I was at my previous role and I kind of pulled him, pulled him aside. He was, at a, he was just starting his uh, venture capital startup journey with the fund called Felix Capital, who um, you know, have done really well in the last few years, some big investments and, uh, and have done super, super well. And I kind of pulled him aside and I said, look, I'm, I'm really bored. I want to take off this suit and tie. Um, and essentially, long story short, he introduced me to Gabby, uh, who, who had just come back from New York and was keen to look at this co-working sector in more detail and, and uh, had actually set up the Clerkenwell space already. So uh, I was kind of pulled in, pulled in late in the day. Uh, you know, Antoine's been a massive, massive help to me and, and to everyone over the last while. And obviously, almost to the day, our dad journey um, has matched blow by blow, poo by poo, bottle by bottle and uh, an early late night by, by early by late night. So um, Antoine's my, uh, my shout out today. That's super cool. And he sounds like a prime candidate for startup dads. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's very good. Brilliant. Well, Andrew, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. That's just been an absolutely awesome, fascinating, hilarious uh, and epic journey through your startup dad life. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thanks for having me on. Many thanks to today's guest. You'll find links to them and their work in the show notes. It would really help us if you shared the show with a friend or colleague. So if you know someone who might find this podcast valuable, please pass it on to them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on Twitter at Startup Dad's Pod. 